Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky with interviews conducted over the years and during the pandemic with playwrights, directors, actors, and producers. My guest is playwright Lauren Gunderson, whose play The Catastrophist is now online streaming at Marin Theater Company through July 24th. Her play Natural Shocks is on SoundCloud and can also be heard through Marin. She has a portion of a play which we'll go into also called The Flats, which can be found at Aurora Theater Company. And even now, Audible Theater is doing The Half-Life of Marie Curie, starring Kate Mulgrew. And there's a filmed version available online at Theater Squared. Before we get into your career and your ideas about playwriting, let's talk a little about The Catastrophist, which is based on the life and work of your husband, Dr. Nathan Wolfe. And this began, the idea began after the pandemic, is that correct? That's right, yeah. So happy to be here. And yes, so that play came about because my husband's work is in virology, specifically when it comes to pandemics. So here we were in a pandemic, and my colleague Jason Minadakis asked me if it might be a time for me to do something I've never done before, which is write about my husband and his work. So thus began the... uh, experiment that is this play. He was pretty nervous about your writing about him, correct? (laughs) You know, he trusts me. And I promised that the story would be done with the kind of clarity of vision and empathy that all of my plays are done with. And he's seen a bunch of them. So he, I think, eventually felt um, like he was in good company, knowing that the last play about a scientist I wrote was about Marie Curie. So that's not, that's not bad if you're a scientist to have her in your in your in your corner. So, but it, it it did take some some deep conversations between husband and wife, as well as writer and subject, about what of our life is public and should it all be public and all of that stuff. So it, it was a journey for our relationship as well as as well as the artistic journey. The first part deals with catastrophe, deals with pandemic, though it's set in 2016. You wanted to come at COVID obliquely, not directly. Why? Yeah, because I think the audience brings COVID with them right now, unfortunately. What we've all been through is something that, you know, you, you're bringing with you to the, to the play. So in some ways, you are completing the story almost more than any other play I've written. The audience always completes the story, but this one in particular, because we're in the presence of a virologist who doesn't know what the audience knows, which is that in four short years, we will be inundated with COVID. And what he knows is that pandemics are um, inevitable and are on their way. We just don't know which one. And so that's kind of the spooky nature of the, the main character not knowing what the audience very well knows. When you were beginning to work on this, I assume you and he had talked about this pandemic. What were his thoughts in January about the accuracy of his predictions? Uh, Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, this is not the subject that you want to be right about, but he was. And 
he has been specifically focused on trying to create data models that will help bolster insurance for pandemics, which does not exist, but certainly will um, after this. And so that's really what the kind of forecasting he was seeing is it would be a great idea to have resilience to pandemics when they, again, inevitably happen. And so many companies turned him down, said, I don't know if that's if we really need that. Of course, here we are. And think about how many jobs and livelihoods could have been protected and, and helped if there were insurance to bolster us in this time. The first half of the play does deal with pandemics, with Ebola, and with what happens to him. But then the play switches gears into issues of life and death involving himself and his father. Was that originally part of the story? How did you decide to kind of move the play into this other direction? You know, every play has to be about its person. It's, it's always about people. As philosophical as a play might get, if it just lives in that intellectual space, theater has to grab you. And the way we do that is through the heart. So always, as I prepare for, for any role, I'm trying to figure out what the truth of the heart of the characters are. And I had to um, do that with my, with my own husband as well, who, of course, I know very, very well. But also, it is a different activity to position the person that you know, who in most of your life, you're trying to help and you know, support and protect. And my job as a dramatist is to say, let's put this character in their most uncomfortable, most stressful situation, most sorrowful, most challenging, because that's when we expose who we really are as a character. So doing that with my husband was a project, but one that I think, you know, uniquely, um, the fuzzy, wonderful alchemy of marriage does allow you to, to do that. Um, and I never thought I would ever write about my husband. That was not the kind of grand plan. But in this moment that we're all in, I felt like we're all being asked to turn inwards. We're all being asked to examine the microcosm of our lives because we're asked to stay inside with our family or our pod. We are zooming into everyone's personal spaces, you know. Um, we're in each other's homes and kitchens and seeing kids and dogs and, and all sorts of stuff that usually, certainly in a professional context, you never get that. But here we are all knowing a lot about each other in a very intimate and sudden way. And so in some ways, that's what started to inform this play. Well, maybe maybe it is the time to write something really personal because we're all in this crazy new reality that's asking us to be bravely open and to shift uh, the facade that we usually have when it comes to work and presenting who we want the world to see. And, and it felt like that could be a combination of things. So the emotional, the personal, partly it just makes good theater. And the other hand, it is where we are now, which I, I think is not a bad thing. You began working on the play. Now, you're, you're also a resident playwright at Marin, and you had spoken with Jason Minidakis about the play as you were working on it. Is that correct? Or before? So Jason knows me and my husband really well and reached out a couple weeks into our lockdown here in San Francisco and said, would you want to write a play about Nathan? Is that might, might be something you would consider? And at first I kind of I, I dismissed the idea because I'd never done it before and it felt like kind of best to keep art and life <laughs> separate. But again, this sense of 
of intimacy that we were all thrust into and stress and anxiety and the kind of inward facing personal accountability that so many everyday people were were facing. I turned all of that inwardness and intimacy and the the distance from the outside world that we had to create for ourselves into a sense of like, now is the time to write something that is personal. As long as I can make a really cool play <laughs> out of it, you know, I just didn't want to write I mean, I can write a play and I can write a one-person play and I've done those things before, but I didn't really want to do it unless it was going to challenge me artistically and to, to make a new kind of theater. And we, were, we had to make a new kind of theater because it was both a play and a film. It's this hybrid in-between thing. And that's what we were designing from the start. So there was a lot of new kind of unexplored theatrical territory uh, to dive into, which, which made it something not only that I kind of knew I could write, but that I really, really wanted to write. When you finished the play, I mean, obviously, you know, went through stages with the dramaturg and all of that. In terms of production, what were you and Jason talking about? Were you always talking about filming a one-person play on the stage of Marin, or did that come later, or was it going to be audio, or was it going to be Zoom? We definitely wanted to have an actor on a stage and use the best uh, cinematographer we could find, but also the best theater and film actor. And we found that in our the amazing performer, William Demerit, who has done a ton of TV and film, but also is you know, classically trained Shakespearean actor, new play actor. So somebody who can kind of straddle both of those worlds was really important. But it was, it was critical to me that it feel like theater. Part of that was probably just terrible nostalgia and the desire to have some theater back. But, but also I wanted to, to do that thing that theater does specifically that is hard to capture on Zoom and, and, and hard to capture in some of these other digital fronts. But when you see an actor on a stage, it is a different feeling of watching a performance than if it is totally film. So, so yeah, it was, that was the experiment, knowing that we wanted actor, stage, lighting, seats, theater, but also have the techniques and the tricks of film that can really amplify emotion, amplify tension, and give us a really kind of beautiful visual component as well. There's a lot of camera tricks in the film, putting it almost more in line with a lot of filmed one-man shows that we've seen in theaters and on television, uh, which means that in this particular case, were you leaving it up to the director, to Jason, to do all that? Or were you working with him in terms of how you wanted the camera to be? A lot of it was coming up with a a visual language. So there's parts in the play where the character looks directly into the camera, which in most film, you're not supposed to do at all. So we're already breaking rules when it comes to that. But those are the really really emotional confessional moments. Then there's the kind of TED Talk filming where the camera you'll see is goes under the character a little bit, looking at him from below and has that kind of classic lecture feel. Then there's behind the shots, handheld movement, all sorts of you know wide, really wide shots where the character suddenly looks very small when we've been right up next to him until that point. So all of this does stuff that theater cannot do. We can't do it in theater. 
And so here we have all of these ways of coming right up next to the character and way back and, and zooming in and out and helping create momentum and tension um, and all of this, this wonderful stuff. So we were designing that together. Jason had a very intuitive sense about this for somebody who'd never made a movie before. Peter Rocco was our cinematographer and uh, did all of the camera work and editing. But seeing it together, we had to find that language when we'd never been asked before to do that in the theater. You've written so many plays. Uh, there was a point a couple of years ago where you were considered the most performed playwright in America. Mm -hmm. uh, does this give you ideas of maybe doing more in the realm of screenplay now? Yeah, I've been writing a lot of screenplays in the last five years. I kind of got pulled into the world of animation, which is wonderful. So I've been really enjoying that. Um, and what's interesting about this play, The Catastrophist, is that it, it was written as a play. It's not actually written as a film. That knowing it would be filmed, but writing it as a play, again, we were trying to hybridize these two approaches in a way that neither of us or none of us involved had ever done before. But yes, I, I love working in screen, but it is a very different process. And uh, that's part of why I, I separate theater from everything else, because they're, they're all very different. Had you worked on the screenplay uh, for I and You, the Maisie Williams version, or were you just the playwright? That one was never a movie. She did the uh, production, the theater production in the UK. It was wonderful. And we, we did a kind of a similar thing to Catastrophist, actually. We filmed the live production and offered it for free. It's the first time it's ever been done for free on Instagram. She is, has a massive following for a very good reason. And she's such a tremendously talented actor. So we were able to use that platform to offer theater for free for a few weeks as the play was open so that people could see it all over the world and certainly trying to hit that younger demographic who certainly uses Instagram more than most. The Half-Life of Marie Curie, those are all just filmed plays like The Catastrophist, yes. as opposed to an actual movie. Yes, indeed. Yeah. The Half-Life of Marie Curie was done beautifully as an audio drama before, way before the pandemic. So the whole point was to create a play that could live on stage, but as well through Audible. So you can listen to the play on Audible now, and the performance is, is gorgeous. Sound design is, is quite beautiful. And then the play is also done as a normal <laughs> stage play as well. So there, there was a company in Arkansas Theater Square that did a, a really breathtakingly beautiful production that you can stream for another couple weeks on their uh, website, their Theater Squared. The Flats, which is done through Aurora Theater Company, and people could find it there. What is that and what's your involvement? A three playwright written and conceived production, again, right at the beginning of the lockdown. Josh Costello is the artistic director of Aurora Theater in Berkeley, California, reached out to three of us, myself, Jonathan Spector, and Cleavon Smith, to come up with something. What do we want to do? Knowing it would be audio, what's a world that we could create? And we ended up with a three-episode uh, story that you can listen to now on auroratheater.org. It's a really interesting world and group of characters that we kind of all concocted together and brought them into the same space. The characters are kind of dealing with something similar than we were dealing in that first round of lockdown. Can't go out of the house, have to stay close by, you know, can only make short trips outside, but it is for a very different reason than COVID. So it kind of feels reminiscent to where we are now, but it is, uh, it's way more sci-fi <laughs> about that. So that was a really fun project. 
And Natural Shocks, was a play that you then made this audio version that went over Marin Theatre Company? Yeah, that play's been done all over. But it, again, right at the lockdown, it felt something that I could do. It has a natural a home in audio. So I actually recorded myself doing it, which is kind of fun because you don't often hear a playwright record their own work. It felt like a chance to kind of say, here's how I would do this play. <laughs> but it is an interesting kind of study of what rhythms and pronunciations and characterizations come out when you have the author do their own work. So it, it's, it's a little bit of an experiment too. <laughs> Does that make you think you'd maybe want to go on stage? Oh God, no. <laughs> no, it's too hard. <laughs> Way too hard. They have to show up every night and, and do it. I'm like, I'll do it once and record it, but I'm done. <laughs> done. So I guess there was also no question that your husband would play himself. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yes. I I thought, no, 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 you don't actually want to be an actor, honey. It's it's not. (laughs) As I was going through your work, there was this wonderful play I saw, and it turns out you co-wrote it called Miss Bennett Christmas at Pemberley. And there was a sequel, The Wickham's Christmas at Pemberley. And you co-authored this with... um, a friend of yours. These are sequels to uh, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Yes. When you were tackling them, what, we, what was in your mind? Well, Margot Malcon is, is my co-author, and she and I dreamt these up because, you know, American theater is always looking at what to do in that holiday slot. You know, you get your Christmas carols and you get a couple of, you know, your nutcrackers and things like that. And frankly, the both of us were tired of them. And we thought, well, there's got to be another kind of a play that could tap into the family part of the holidays and the kind of coming together, nostalgia, beautiful costumes. What can we do to tell those stories of transformation um, and frankly give the women a bit more of a, of a, of a center stage? Obviously, saw Jane, Jane Austen, which kind of checks all of those boxes. And we both love the books um, so much and they've meant to us, uh, meant so much to us through our lives. So it felt like a nice if a slightly ambitious and presumptive task to to take Jane Austen's characters and write new stories for them. But they are just such a delight. Not I, I like watching them personally, but to, to write them and to rehearse them, they're always so delightful because we get fabulous actors, beloved characters. The storylines always have some romance and some argument and sisterhood and um, beautiful costumes, of course. So it's they are just absolute delights to, to write and, and to work on. So we're actually working on a third one right now, which will hopefully premiere as soon as we get those theaters back open. I noticed that the first one is starting to pop up a lot, regional theaters around the country. It's oh, getting yeah. popular. Oh, yeah. It was one of the most produced plays in America last year or two years ago. To be honest, one of my favorite things is around the kind of November Thanksgiving time when a lot of those holiday plays are starting to to open across the country. Margot and I both get the absolute pleasure of seeing all the pictures of all the different casts and all the different sets. And uh, it's the same characters, but we see so many people. Um, and we certainly encourage absolute affirmative diversity in casting. So you get all of these women on stage and it's just an absolute, oh, I can't, I can't dis- fully describe the the pleasure of it. Well, then one last question. Okay, the first play takes place upstairs at Christmas. Second takes place downstairs. Uh, what's the third take place? <laughs> the third play is called Georgiana and Kitty. So we're focusing on two of the Darcy Bennett clan that we haven't seen yet. And we're going to be upstairs for the first act and then in a different city for the second act. So 
The first act will take place simultaneously with the other plays, and then the second act takes us a few years later. Let's go back a little bit. You're from Atlanta, and your dad was a reverend at a progressive Southern church. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Atlanta, Georgia. Well, Decatur specifically, right next to Atlanta. And what got you involved in theater? You know, I always loved doing plays at school and kind of the power of the spoken word um, and I think a little bit of the show off in me. (laughs) Um, But I I assumed that that would turn me into an actor, which I kind of dappled in a little bit. But my true self was was more fully known as a writer when I realized, oh, people still write plays. (laughs) We can we can they need more of them. We're not we're not all tapped out. And seeing new new plays in conversation with classical plays and mid-century classics. And so suddenly I found myself really ready to write. And I, um, I found a good home in the Atlanta theater community, which I still love. Followed that journey to New York for grad school and then to San Francisco and, and really found my theater home out here. When you say you found a home in the Atlanta theater community, how did that happen? Did you approach someone and say, hey, here's a chance to do a play? How did that work? (laughs) Kind of, sort of, I did. I mean, again, I I started as an actor, so I had some contacts within the Atlanta theater community because of plays I'd been in or seen or et cetera. And so I remember writing my first first play, my first full-length play. It was about three generations of Southern women in a Winnebago. It was kind of very similar to the work I do now, which has a lot of humor, a lot of kind of tension, um, family, uh, but a, a lot of kind of serious, kind of profound theatrical reveals at the end and et cetera, et cetera. And I just handed the play to a director I knew who directed me as an actor the year before. And I just said, I think I've written a play. I don't know if I have. Would you read it and tell me what you think? And um, Peter Hardy was his name. He's still a, an actor and a director and a writer in Atlanta. And, you know, he got back to me a couple months later and um, basically said, this is a play and it's just won this award for best new play by a Georgia writer. (laughs) And I thought, what? (laughs) Didn't even know I submitted, but oh my gosh, thank you. So he had since then started a theater company that was devoted to, to Georgia writers. And so the kind of fabulous happenstance and deeply strange accident, but it, it really set me on the course for the, for the rest of my life. And then the next stage was you went to school. I studied Southern literature and writing, English theater at Emory University, which is my undergrad. And then after that, um, after kind of a year in between, went to NYU's Tisch program and studied dramatic writing, which includes screen and TV as well as, as theater. But theater was always my my most, um, my home <laughs> and my, my passion. So uh, yeah. And then from then kind of started leapfrogging around the country to various new play development programs and theater companies and found San Francisco. You know, it's it's a fabulous town here. It's It's not really known as a big theater town, but but I think it is one of the most exciting theater cities in, in the country because of the amount of theater, the different kinds of theater, the sizes are so big and small, and the subjects and all of these incredible communities come together. And most important to me is we see plays getting produced out here. We want to make them, put them up, get them a full production, whereas oftentimes you just see plays getting reading after reading, development after development, um, and kind of never get that premiere. And out here, we, we want to put the plays up. It's a perfect place for me. There's a number of theater companies, San Francisco Playhouse, Berkeley Rep, TheaterWorks, Marin, Magic, that all do original plays. 
ACT as well. So you, you're kind of this kind of this broad grouping, but I think that's happening a lot all over the country, isn't it? Oh yeah, I mean every regional, major regional center has uh, theater companies, large and small, that do new work. It's riveting. I, I, I love the regional theater community. I mean, what is somewhat a little bit baffling about me continuing to be on the top of those most produced playwright in America lists is that I don't have a, a, a very large resume of New York productions, but I have lived happily and gleefully <laughs> in the regional world. And, you know, this is a very big country and New York is just one city among many and, of course, a very important city. And uh, I certainly love going there um, whenever I can and working there. But, um, you know, my, my career is built in San Francisco and L.A. and Denver and Atlanta and Seattle, Chicago. And, and that makes me just so, so happy to, to have those communities that respond to my work and want more. Anywhere that does theater, uh, that's where I want to be. So I love Broadway as commercial as it is. I, I always enjoy it there. But in New York is varied as well. We have some off-Broadway and downtown theaters and all sorts of places to see new plays there. And it's true, though, that in the last couple decades, the amount of, of theaters across the country and the work that they're able to do, the commissions they're able to offer, writers who get their start in um, far-flung places <laughs> uh, are many. And I'm, I'm kind of very proud of American theater that it, that it has this diversity of of foci and voices, and um, it's. I think it's nothing but good news for for American theaters. The only problem with that, of course, is now we've had a year of pandemic, and some theater companies have been forced to close, including uh, Bay Area musicals here in the, in San Francisco. Yeah, it's so heartbreaking. When do you think we'll get back into theaters? Is you, you're looking forward? Maybe the summer. Uh, I hope so. The more vaccines we get in more arms, the sooner we can all be together. I hope that's that's quite soon because partly I have a lot of <laughs> plays set for development. I want to get back in the room and start start making things. Let's talk a little about playwriting. Uh, you teach playwriting, correct? I do, yeah. Among the things I've read is that you focus in a way, and maybe that this is not the right way to put it, in how a play ends, the last image can you go into that a little bit and the importance of that last image? Sure. I do find great clarity when I think about the end of the story. And I kind of can't really start writing the play until I know a version of the ending, because that's what the play's about. How does it end? What does it all mean? What, why are we telling this story? Where are we going? And until I know that as a writer, I can't really begin. Um, so I'm not one of those that'll just start writing and kind of 30 pages in, kind of go, oh, I should figure out where this is going. I need to know where it's going before I start. So that's driven my sense of my own writing, but also something that I didn't really get taught that clearly uh, through my training. And so I wanted to share that perspective with people. And some people really take to it and, and some don't. And again, this is art. So <laughs> any way that you find to, to make your truth, make it that way. Um, but for me, that has been very clarifying and exciting because I, I want to know where it's going. And if you can figure out um, from the beginning, asking yourself, all right, if you're writing Hamlet, <laughs> well, how's it going to end? Is Hamlet going to get revenge for his father's murder or not? And if you say, yes, he's going to get revenge, then you can write to that ending moment and make it so juicy and earned. Um, so it, it, we are in bated breath waiting for Hamlet to figure out, is he actually going to 
going to kill the king or not. Um, so I use that thought process in a lot of my work and certainly in plays like I and You, which have built in this big, big twist at the end. You kind of can't write that accidentally. You have to know where you're going in order to set up all the pieces so they fall perfectly with just one line and then everyone get gasps at once. So it's a very kind of technical approach to writing in some ways. Um, but I find if you can focus on that technical stuff, the architecture, almost engineering uh, of the play, then you can build in those places for you to have absolute wild, creative fun, <laughs> um, but still have something that's really satisfying. I notice in some plays when I'm watching them, they end or they rather stop than end. And the <laughs> audience doesn't know whether to applaud or whether there's something else. Is that a failure? Hmm. I, it's all, it's always hard to be general about what plays work or don't without knowing an exact one. But but I would say it certainly teaches the team something. If my audience didn't know whether to applaud, I think we have an immediate conversation with the director and the dramaturg and say like, all right, <laughs> the audience needs to know when it's over. How do we do that? Is it a lighting cue that's not working? Is it a sound cue that's not working? Is it something in the play the audience doesn't have clarity enough to know? Um, or is it the directing? But yeah, I, I think you you want your audience to walk away going, I can tell you what happened and why. <laughs> I don't personally find it exciting, kind of cliffhanger plays or like, what do you think happened? I'm like, well, you're the writer. You, you tell me what happened. <laughs> so yeah, but some of that is, of course, taste. And this is what I love about theater is that everyone brings their own taste and perspective and opinion to it. And all of them are welcome. Now, what about the difference between a one act of, say, 90 minutes or 80 minutes in the case of The Catastrophist or, or your old standard two-act plays. I notice we're seeing more of the shorter plays now. Do you think that's just a matter of people having shorter attention spans? It might be. Um, I don't think it's just that, though. I mean, something like I Knew or The Catastrophist, if there were an intermission, it breaks up something that really wants to stick together. It, it, it wants the audience to not ever step out of the world of the play until the end. And I think that is a totally justifiable reason for writing a play all the way through. And sometimes I'm asked, well, where do you put the intermission? I'm like, please don't put an intermission in that one. No, 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 don't do that. We want the audience to just, once they're on the roller coaster, they're on the roller coaster. But some plays, like you mentioned, Miss Bennett, that intermission is a wonderful way for the audience to check in with each other, stretch their legs, have talk about what they're excited about in the end, and really separate the acts as well. So dramaturgically, I need that intermission. But for catastrophists or natural shocks or INU, you don't really want to break the experience of, of watching it. One problem I found in newer plays between, say, a one act of 90 minutes versus a two-act play is a lot of two-act plays. The first act is wonderful, funny, and ends on the kind of moment where you're going, what happens next? What happens next? And then act two falls apart. Yeah, that's a shame. <laughs> Got to keep it going. I mean, I will say for all the writers out there, all the playwrights certainly will know that the act, act twos are the hardest because that's where you have to get that energy right back, get the audience back in with you um, and excited to be there. You have to answer a bunch of questions. Usually your act break has a big a cliffhanger moment, a surprise, something that changes uh, the, the nature of the rest of the play. So you have to deal with that. Usually your character is going to have something hard happen to them that they have to overcome, which how do we have them do, you know, 
feel a kind of depressive state, but also not have the audience <laughs> feel like they want to run away. And then it all has to wrap up. So this, again, is why I always think of the ending, because if I have the ending, I can know what my act, act two needs to do and where it's going and how to get the audience along the ride again. When you're starting to work on a play, which is more important to you, the concept behind it, the plot or the storyline, or do you start with the characters and go, well, what are they going to do? I don't really have a, a formula for that. Um, sometimes it absolutely is a character in the case of the catastrophist. I, I know that character very well. <laughs> and um, right. I know he is bouncing between the emotional and the intellectual the whole time. Um, but then some plays we definitely need to know are, the, is the couple going to get together? Is Hamlet going to kill <laughs> the, the the murderer of his father. I mean, those are plot questions and kind of knowing that clearly and deciding that is, is important to know, well, who do we need to populate this play with? But for me, I think it's, it, it leans more towards character and, and concept. Um, and the concept I, is kind of the word I use to describe that ending. What does it mean? It's not just a surprise for no reason. It's a surprise or a twist or a reveal or a confession that really um, helps drive home the philosophical point, the metaphysics of what the play is about. Is it about the power of love? Is it is about the, the kind of um, confidence of family? Is it, what? I don't know, truth above all else, whatever. Um, so whatever theme is there, uh, I can, if, I can, if I can connect all of those, like a compelling character, a meaningful and universal theme, and a plot that ties those two at the end, then I know, okay, I'm, I'm onto something. Jason Minidakis has said more than once to me that for him as the artistic director, the success or failure of a play sometimes simply depends on what happens, the dialogue between audience members after the play ends. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that? Oh, yeah. Yes. A play that asks something of your audience is one that inherently has engagement at its heart. If there are ways to come at the play from different angles, or if the audience can say, well, I really understood his point of view, and oh, you did? I understood her point of view. Um, something that sparks conversation and investigation is something that's going to stick uh, a lot longer. And there's lots of ways to do that. Sometimes the, it's the designers that are really carrying the heavy load of making something unforgettable. And off, of course, oftentimes it's the actors who are brave, athletic <laughs> creatures of emotion uh, and, of course, conducting all of it as a, with a director. So it really depends. But I, I, I personally, as an audience member, and I really write what I want as an audience member, <laughs> if, if, I, if there's a play I wish existed, I'll just go ahead and, and write it. And that's kind of how I got into all this mess to begin with. But I still think of that as an audience member of going, I want, I want to wonder and ponder and uh, and and be left in the spirit of inquiry as opposed to feeling like I was lectured or that everything worked out perfectly or et cetera, et cetera, or kind of that it's that it's of, of, of less importance to walk away and go like, oh, that was interesting. That's not the place I, I, I want to be a part of. I want to be the part of once like, that was fabulous. <laughs> that was fascinating. Wow, that made me angry. <laughs> like all of those are good reactions because they're, they're big ones. I noticed that you... Um... You pay particular attention to the work of Sarah Rule. Why is that? Hmm. Sarah Rule was a and still is a playwright of. I mean, there's nobody like her. And when I was in high school and kind of really finding the confidence to say, like, I want to be a playwright. That's what I want to do. Her work was really starting to to hit. Uh, the Clean House was everywhere, and she was winning awards and. 
So it was, uh, her work was very accessible to me. And in it, I found just a whole new way of writing. And I don't write plays like her at all. The appreciation wasn't one that sparked imitation, but one just said, you can break these rules and break them so beautifully. Her, her stage directions, the kind of mythology that she's able to, to dramatize, the humor and the sexuality and the feminism, it was just so invigorating. So I think of her, I think of Paula Vogel and Lynn Nottage, kind of all in the same category of female uh, identifying playwrights that were just absolutely profoundly meaningful to me at a very at a very uh, crucial point in my my artistic development. The difference between a female playwright and a male playwright on some level is there really a difference? I mean there's a difference in everybody. But I love the question and I I think it's a good one. What I think I found uh, that I wasn't seeing in the the works that I was given kind of in my normal educational journey or the plays that frankly a lot of people were doing there weren't a lot of female playwrights being produced. And so that begs a question of why <laughs> we're half the population, where are half of the stories? And there's an authenticity that anybody has for their own personal lived experience that, you know, you can say, well, men can write women, right? And you're like, well, yes, but you can also make room for women to write themselves. We don't need somebody else to write us. We should write our own story. And that is true with with people of color, with differently abled people, trans people, I mean, any community should be able to tell their story. And, um, and that's kind of what my early feminism was all about realizing. I have not seen a play written by a woman, like one out of 10 of them are written by a woman. Why is that? That's absurd. That's bananas. And so finding, inserting myself into American theater was in some ways that our response to that and saying, uh, we have stories to tell and we have stories that it's not just one woman in the play of the rest of them are men. Um, like, why don't we have a play of all women? Why, why are there so few of those? There still are. So yeah, I, I, I found great, great energy from looking at uh, other female identifying writers as a, as a way to, to find my own voice. Lauren Gunderson, most playwrights are working on multiple plays at the same time because they have different development contracts and they have different ideas. How many plays are you currently working on? <laughs> I don't actually know. I do have little post-its for all of them, and I'm counting there's probably about seven. Some are musicals, and a couple of them are TV ideas and film ideas. Um, but yes, I always have about a dozen projects going on in, in various different phases. Do you ever see yourself working in a, a TV writer's room? Oh, sure, sure. Yes. I, I love I mean, I... I Anywhere that you can tell a dramatic story, and by that I mean where you write lines for people to say, <laughs> um, I want to be there. That's, that's, my, that's my happy place. So it sounds as if even though you enjoy writing your own plays, you also look forward to collaboration. Oh, I love collaboration. The last 10 years or five years specifically have been a real resurgence of that in my, um, or I, say, I should say emergence because it hasn't happened before. So many collaborations, and I certainly learned the power of that through musicals. I'm working on a musical called Jeanette with my collaborator Ari Offsar about the first female congressperson in American history, and one about Ruth Bader Ginsburg with collaborators Brie Loudermilk and Kay Kerrigan. I have 
couple of other musicals. The Time Traveler's Wife was just announced in the UK. That's a kind of West End bound um, musical with Joss Stone and Dave Stewart. So all of those projects are just, I love being in the room with a lot of artistic minds. And, um, and then of course, the collaboration with Margot on our third Miss Bennett play and on and on and on. So yes, I, I am always ready <laughs> to, to collaborate. Right now, the catastrophists and these other plays are running. Uh, do you have anything coming up in the next couple of months that we'll be streaming? You know, a lot of them will be streaming for several months. So a lot of the plays that you mentioned will be available for a while. What else is happening? I don't actually know. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't think anything brand new will happen. A lot of it is our eyes are kind of turning back to development with theaters kind of starting to inch open again. Uh, one final question, Lauren Gunderson. In one place, I read that you were working on a epic about feminism. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to that? You know, I would love to work on that project. Being epic, it is hard to <laughs> get everything organized to realize it. Um, but that's kind of my big, my big dream is to not write it by myself, but to work with two or three other writers to tell this very big kind of Shakespearean epic level of feminism and women in America, which um, it'll, t- it'll take a couple of years to do that, but uh, I haven't given up on that one. You've been listening to an interview with Lauren Gunderson, the playwright. The Catastrophist is playing at the Marin Theater Company websites at marintheater.org through July 24th, 2021. The Flats is at auroratheater.org. And Audible Theater is doing The Half-Life of Marie Curie. There's a film version at Theater Square of The Half-Life of Marie Curie. And I guess there's probably other plays out there that neither of us are fully aware of. (laughs) (laughs) There are. I'm very lucky to have a a bunch of companies of all shapes and sizes are doing various streamed versions of of plays of mine. So check your local theater and support them, um, no matter what they're doing. (laughs) But but, uh, if they're doing one of mine, tell them I sent you. I'm Richard Walensky, and see you next Sunday for another edition of the Bay Area Theater Podcast. Mm -hmm.